Welcome to Intrepid Media, the show for the business professional. Here, we're going to talk about business topics such as leadership, sales, marketing, HR, innovation, strategy, and technology. But we're also going to riff about lifestyle too and help you look better, feel better, and live better. This show is everything the modern business professional needs, from the C-level executive to the millennial. So let's get on with the show. Good morning and welcome back to Intrepid Radio. I am your host, Todd Schnick. This is going to be a very important conversation. As you all know, I have been monitoring and reporting on and covering manufacturing for many, many years now. And today's conversation is going to be an important dialogue around where American manufacturing currently sits and more importantly, where it's going. So this is going to be a critical conversation. Let's get to it. I'm joined now by Stephen Blue. He is the CEO of Miller Ingenuity and the author of a new book that we're here to talk about, American Manufacturing 2.0, What Went Wrong and How to Make It Right. Stephen, welcome to the show. Well, thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Now, the pleasure's mine. I appreciate you making time to join us. I know you're awfully busy, so I appreciate uh, and grateful for your time and joining us today. Uh, Stephen, before we get into our conversation around this important new book, take a few quick seconds. Tell us a bit about you, your background, and then give us a quick overview of Miller Ingenuity, what you guys are doing, and how you're serving your market. Sure, I'd be happy to. Well, as you mentioned, I'm the CEO of Miller Ingenuity, and I've been in leadership positions at the top levels in general management and executive levels for, I hate to admit it, for about 40 years now. And I started off my career with Rockwell Automation. I was in marketing and sales. I went to work for a turnaround for five or six years, successfully changed that, and was in publishing for a little bit. And I've been working at Miller Ingenuity as its CEO for the last 18 years. And Miller Ingenuity is a supplier of life safety systems. We make products that keep roadway uh, track workers from getting killed because they don't see the approach of a train. And our devices are very high technology, warn them of the approach and give them the opportunity to get off the track. So let's get into this book. So American Manufacturing 2.0, What Went Wrong and How to Make It Right. So Look, there's been an awful lot of dialogue and, and thought leadership and books and articles and white papers about the state of manufacturing, let alone American manufacturing. So there's been a lot of discussion of how it's been struggling over these last few years. But why did you need to write this book? Help us understand that. Well, you're right. There, there's It's all over the map. I mean, grab any expert you want. And he'll have three reasons why American manufacturing is in the tank, everything ranging from bad trade deals to currency manipulation and you name it, and there's theories out there. But what I got tired of listening to was CEOs who want to blame the government for their failure of leadership. Now, there's no question about it that, that the government's played a role in the decline of uh, U.S. manufacturing, but you know, United States business leadership has also played a role and I talked to a lot of CEO groups, and I, I, I talked to them about the importance of culture. And uh, they usually look at me, and their eyes gloss over, and they go, well, no, no, it can't be culture. It's got to be, I don't know, give me some other way to grow the company, an acquisition, you know, research and development, the punch press machine, you know, this culture stuff is just a bunch of nonsense. And to them, I say, if you don't believe culture can have a major impact in a business, I have two words for you, Wells Fargo. <laughs> well, Wells Fargo has what I call bumper sticker values, right? Right. 
They have uh, ethics and do what's right for the customers, their top two values. Well, obviously, if that really was the true culture of Wells Fargo, they couldn't have done what they did, could they? Right. Absolutely. So I wanted to write a book that focuses more on creating a culture by design as opposed to a culture by default. And I'm trying to get U.S. manufacturing executives to open their eyes to the importance of culture and stop blaming the government for their problems. Yeah, well, you know, it's the old personal responsibility thing. We have the within our grasp the ability to to positively impact our culture, but also we don't. I mean, look, the government obviously has a role, and we're going to talk about that. And and we could debate for hours about the role that government should or should not play. But I guess maybe a helpful framework here, Stephen, is for you to take a second and explain how we got here in the first place. I mean. You can look back on tales of yore about just how glorious American manufacturing used to be and, and what a what a great story it was and, and how we turned this around into an economic firepower and how we dominated the world with our manufacturing prowess. But we're not there anymore. And it's important to understand why. So how did we get there? And how did China and Mexico and, and other developing countries, how did they get some mojo there to walk us through those things well there are two things i think that can one may have been the result of another uh, may have been concurrent with the other the the wto as i think a lot of u.s executives would say it was a bad deal for the united states and if you look at what's happened to u.s manufacturing jobs since wto there's somewhere in the order of nearly four million have been lost and if you look at the trade deficit between China and the United States since WTO, it went from, I don't know, 600 million to 10 or 15 years ago to nearly 300 billion today. So the first, I think, uh, effective thing that happened was the WTO. Then, either coincident with or possibly as a result of, Todd, what happened is U.S. leadership started looking at their workforce and their employees as expendable assets instead of renewable resources. Mm. And, they, and they treated them that way, and so therefore they acted that way. And so as an expendable asset, eh, it's just an asset that's been fully depreciated. I don't need it anymore. I'll ship it off to China or I'll ship it off to India or whatever. Uh, but the, what they should be doing is they should be looking at them as renewable resources. So you take those two things together, and one could predict where we are today. Yeah, absolutely. Kid, there are a lot of people, Stephen, who I think believe, look, we had our time. We, there isn't really, look, it's, we can't get that back. This just In this new global economy, this, this new global world that we're in with all these instant communications where we could communicate, network, and market to virtually every corner of the planet, it's no longer going to be a thing where manufacturing American manufacturing can even dominate again or even become a, a major player again. I, I, it, can we get this back? I mean, is this even is this conversation even worth having or or are there key steps that that we can do to lead to American manufacturing 2.0? Well, I hope so because if we can't get it back, you know, the current economic conditions we're looking at right now are just going to continue to get worse right. because, you know, it's a cycle of uh, I make good money, I buy goods. I buy goods, I make good money, and on and on it goes. And if you look at, you know, in the 60s or the 50s, the top three employers were manufacturers, U.S. Steel, 
General Motors, and I believe Standard Oil was number three. And then in today's dollars, the average wage was about $21 an hour, roughly. Now the top three employers are Walmart, McDonald's, and Yum! Brands. And many of your listeners will know that's the Pizza Hut guys. And their average wage today is, oh, I suppose around $9, maybe some change. So the purchasing power of uh, people who were employed by manufacturers has been cut in half. And then that has a cyclical effect on the economy, and it's a downward spiral. Eventually, you end up being maybe not quite a third-world country because we still have the infrastructure of a first-world country, but economically you become a third-world country. So I would hope that we haven't seen the end of American manufacturing because I think that would just be awful for the United States of America. First thing we have to do is the next president, whoever that is, has to appoint a cabinet-level manufacturing czar. I don't mean czar is like one of these people that he just puts into a position, but a cabinet-level secretary of manufacturing to put a major push on improving the manufacturing side from from the government side. They've got to stop making bad deals, and they've got to start enforcing the bad deals that they've made. That would be number one. Number two, every CEO in America has to have a new relationship with the workforce. You can't, you know, right now our workforce the workforce that won the Second World War is outsourced to India. And, and the reason that is is because a lot of CEOs treat their employees like, well, you know, you come to work, I pay you, and you leave, and, and that's sort of it. And then when you think about the millennials, things get a whole lot more complicated, don't they? Because millennials, they have this strange notion that they want to have a life, too. They don't want to just be have a job. So you have to find ways to motivate and inspire people so they want to contribute to the organization, and they want to do their best. I'll, I'll give you an example. I say every CEO should build what I call a Cirque du Soleil organization. Have you ever seen that show? I'm very aware of it, yes. Well, you know, that company comes to work every day, all those people, and they are totally jazzed up. They're on the edge. They, they, they want to do a better job today than they did yesterday. And the model that every CEO should use when, the, when they're building their workforce or when they're creating a culture by design, not default, is they should have the Cirque du Soleil model. They should find ways to inspire and motivate and jazz people up so they perform like Cirque du Soleil does. See, but there's so many people that would never relate Cirque du Soleil to American manufacturing or manufacturing in general. I mean, because I, I, I think there's this negative imagery tied to manufacturing that it's these blue collar guys wearing overalls and these dirty plants and they get dirty they get dirt under the nails but i i beg to differ on that because i think it's it's there's never been a more exciting time to be in manufacturing because i i think the manufacturing that people most people think of when they think of the word manufacturing is this big industrial plant where there's automation and they're building cars or whatever the case but that there's so much more to it and there's the, the technology and the innovation that you're seeing in manufacturing today i think is game changing i mean i think part of the issue that we have to combat here and fight and i think it's a fight that's frankly easy to win if if we do it right is that the the, the innovation technology that's involved in manufacturing should be something that interests everyone these millennials that say oh i would never work in manufacturing goodness i want to start up some tech company well i'm sorry to say (laughs) there is some amazing stuff having manufacturing i mean this is a cool time to be in manufacturing no question about that. I'll just uh, use my own company as an example. Now, I, I, in addition to very high technology products, the life-saving products that I talk about have mesh neural networks in them. They have 
every kind of sensor you can imagine from radar to laser to uh, cameras and very complicated algorithms and computers on board, spare power supplies and all that kind of stuff. But I also have a part of my factory that makes just purely dumb metal and dumb plastic parts. So you walk through my factory, you will see, this is to your point, Todd, you will see a variety of technologies and a variety of manufacturing processes. But when you walk into the back part of my factory, there's a place that we call the Creation Station, which is about a half a million dollar room I built so people can come into it and like think about things, brainstorm, generate ideas. And everyone in the company, blue and white collar, is free to go back into that room anytime they want. It's like walking into an oasis. You come through this factory and all of a sudden, wow, it's got Florida glass ceilings, it's got high technology, you know, communications devices in it. And everyone is free to go back there and spend uh, up to 20% of paid work time thinking about things. And that's the kind of thing you have to do if you want to revitalize manufacturing. You have to provide these opportunities for people from all ages and all work ethics to be able to come together and, and be inspired. Yeah. See, the key thing there, I'm, I'm speaking to the audience here, is that the manufacturing isn't just sitting there on the line man, being sure that, that the robotics are working or that the... <laughs> the conveyor system is functioning. And then the, the, when, when guys like Steven are saying, we're, we're going to build space so people can think about things, this is, this is in a very good way, a very common tale in a manufacturing. I mean, this is, the, this is the new spirit that you're starting to see. And again, I think manufacturing as a whole is burdened by this reputation of its history when, in fact, it, it is a very, very cool time. So that's very, very exciting. And I, and I think, Steven, you're, you're going to see certainly as a result of leaders like you in this space, you're going to see more of that encouragement, that empowerment of people to be thinking about things. And that's, I'm not just playing off of this maker movement in 3D printing where virtually anyone can be a manufacturer, even in their garage these days. I'm, I'm talking about in large organizations, large, large enterprises such as yours, where th there's a lot of encouragement to do this. And there needs to be more, there's no doubt about it. And again, we can talk about the government's role and how they can help facilitate and encourage and and, and support that. Let's talk about the consumer, though, I, I, because I, I think there's some level of misunderstanding on the consumer's part that this manufacturing thing is, is a different world than what you and I know that it is and, and can even be better at. But what, what can the consumer do to help support this? I mean, it's not just a matter of saying, hey, if it's made in China, don't buy it. I mean, there's, there's more to it than that. Talk about the consumer's role here. You know, you can't. I get asked this question all the time, Ted. You can't tell the consumer, listen, be a good boy, raise the flag, and spend $10 more for a shirt than you have to, because nobody's going to do that. Uh, they're just not. And, uh, you know, you walk in any Walmart store, and it's all made in China, and that's, you know, that is what it is. And to some degree, American manufacturing's failure has forced the consumer into a position where they don't have any choice because their wages have been cut in half. And so the way to, to get the consumer reengaged is to by be, becoming more competitive, reducing prices, uh, uh, reshoring, if you will, if that's what's required, or cut your margins. If you're a big company and you're making a lot of margin, a big margin, now you know you know you have to know these companies like Walmart when when they're buying a shirt in in South Vietnam for. 13 cents or whatever the heck they're buying it for and they're selling it for eight maybe they ought to cut their margins a little bit to start to encourage consumers to come back to the higher price goods and then start sourcing the that product uh, out of indiana i'll give an example i i'm the uh, founder of a, a uh, contributing article series called the league of extraordinary ceos it's on american city business journals every month 
and I interview cool CEOs that done cool things. There's a little manufacturing company that does textiles up in northern Minnesota. And you know yourself, Todd, textiles have been gone for a long time. Oh, yeah. Long time. And so she decided she didn't even know anything about textiles, and she bought some assets. I can't remember how she came upon the assets, but she bought the assets. All of the technical manuals were in Japanese, and so she had to hire somebody who could uh, who could interpret uh, and convert the technical manuals to English. And, and, and she's doing about uh, an eight or ten million dollar business up there in an industry that's supposed to be long dead. Right. I mean, this is the kind of thing that uh, American manufacturers have to do. They got to grab the bull by the horns, get creative and innovative, and start bringing those jobs back. If we brought ten percent of the jobs back that we've lost to China, our unemployment rate would be two percent. Yep. Yep. Well, here's the deal. I, I don't want, and you may have a different opinion on this, Stephen. I, I don't want to sit there and say our, our role here is to bring them back from China. They, we might not get them back from China. But there's, the, the pie can get bigger, right? We could still right. we could still do things. And, and part of the, your mission with this book is to say, here are the things you, Mr. Manufacturer, Mr. American Manufacturer, can do to, to change the whole paradigm here. And so, look, China, manufacturing China affords a lot of people to start a business because they can't afford to do it here, and so they can do it there. And so that's not going to go away. China's not going to just say, okay, our bad, and, and go yep. away and not be a player here. So we have to, the playing field's going to have China on it, and we've got to deal with that. So the, the conversation here is, what can we do to strengthen and improve American manufacturing? And look, here's the deal. If American manufacturing is strong, as is China's manufacturing, well, good. And the world benefits. That's not a bad thing. So, That's so right. okay, I'm getting too emotional here. But unfortunately, you and I have to go to break. So we'll pick this conversation up when uh, Stephen Blue and I return from this commercial break. We'll be right back. In today's workplace, business leaders face significant pressure to recruit and retain the best employees to effectively build a team to create a culture that is healthy, productive, and dynamic, and to empower their staff in managing stress and finding balance. And behind all those pressures is one goal, to strengthen and grow the business. And too many organizations struggle with this. Unlimited Coaching Solutions provides customized strategies and training to help reach your goals and take your teams to the next level. Call them today at 585-248-9322 or find them online at unlimitedcoaching.com. All right, I am back with Stephen Blue, CEO of Miller Ingenuity and the author of a new book, American Manufacturing 2.0. So Stephen, how do we turn this around for American manufacturing? I, I think uh, the whole mission and purpose of your book is to help a manufacturer, him or herself, figure out and be, be a little use a little ingenuity to kind of turn some things around here, but there is probably a role that government can play before we go any further. What is that? Should, should they be, can they have a, a, a serviceable role here? Can they, can they affect the playing field at all or should they stay completely hands off? Well, you know, of course they can, whether they should or not, you know, it depends on what side of the economic and political argument you're on. They, they, they don't know what to do. They know how to do it. Whether they should or not is a really good question, Todd, because I don't pay any attention to government policy when it comes to economics because I can't do anything about it. Right. I've been in rooms of CEOs where they start whining and moaning about the government, this, those are just excuses. So you just have to sort of park the government off to the side and say the government's going to do what the government's going to do and there's nothing you can do about it. 
but what, what CEOs have to do, what they have to realize, uh, any business, but especially if you're a manufacturer, guess what, Mr. CEO, you do not have the answers. And Steve Blue, he does not have the answers either. Who does have the answers is right outside your walls, right in your factories and in your offices, and all you have to do is create the culture. This is where I get disagreements from CEOs. All you have to do is create the culture that inspires people and motivates people, support them with what they need to do their jobs, and they do have the answers. All you have to do is unlock them. Right. Well, I mean, we could talk for hours about, you know, oh, the regulations make this so hard to do what we do. Yeah, I get that. Could the government affect that policy? Of course they could. Uh, and maybe someday that will get where it needs to be. That, that's a whole nother conversation. The, the thing I do believe that the government could influence, however, is is on improving our education. I think they ought to be pushing things like STEM and pushing uh, internships and, and apprenticeships because I think it goes back to what we were saying before the break when we were saying this is Really cool time to be manufacturing. There's some amazing innovation technology, and and people ought to be ought to be exposed to that, and they ought to be aware of that. And, and there's so much that we could do just to get people excited about this kind of a of, of business career in in doing in building amazing things. Can the government have a have a positive role to play in impacting the education side of this in terms of math and and those kinds of things? Well, well, sure they could. I mean, all they have to do is either raise taxes, which nobody wants to talk about yeah. these days, nobody wants to fund these days, or provide tax incentives for it. Or when you look at some of these schools, they're already doing the kind of things you're talking about. And it's not just math, it's languages. Right. Our local high school makes Mandarin Chinese, by the way, a uh, required course. Wow. Yeah. You know, you go, I travel all over the world, Todd, uh, and every just about everywhere I go... I run into people from other countries who speak English pretty well, and I always ask them the same question. Where'd you learn it? Oh, in school. Mm. It was required mm. to learn English. Now, of course, you know, English is, at least up until now, is the language of business internationally, but still. And so, uh, but I agree with you, uh, schools need to, right down to the elementary level, start start educating people on the careers that are out there, you know, what, what the basic platforms and, and requirements and, and uh, knowledges are to, to get into these careers and teach them the skills they need so when they get to me, they're able to become a, a, a profitable, motivated worker in the workforce as opposed to me having to train them in everything. Well, there's all this conversation about, oh, robots and automation and all this is going to take all the jobs away. I'm here to tell you it ain't going to happen that way. Maybe in a couple thousand years, but but manufacturing, the way that, that even we understand it in the modern business world, this is not going anywhere. In fact, there's still tremendous opportunity to to expand dramatically what's happening there. So so don't sit there and, and get sucked in this argument that oh, it's all these jobs are going away just because of how we do business today. I, I don't I don't buy it for a minute. But I think I the either. key point that, that you're making through not only this conversation, but, but through all of the work that you do and, and certainly the book is the idea that, that the manufacturer, him or herself, has the power within them to affect change in a positive way here. And, and, and you've talked about it in terms of, of the culture of the organization. I want to talk now about the seven values of ingenuity. Because I think that it becomes the engine by which we can take the bull by the horns and begin to turn this thing around. So, so why don't you lead us off and, and just give us a quick overview of those seven values of ingenuity and, and, 
and and how they are important here. I'd be happy to. Now, if you, in a nutshell, the seven values of ingenuity are a, a system of, of uh, principles and practices that, when they're taken as a whole, you can't take one of them without the rest. It's taken as a whole and implemented in the right sequence. There's a certain order you have to do this for in order for it to be effective. If you do all of that, it just it's, it fuels amazing productivity and performance in the organization, and it unleashes just incredible creativity and innovation and it comes in in four parts four phases if you will and they have to be taken in this order the first phase is you have to build leadership credibility so imagine this you're you're going to go down the road of here are the values that the company has here's what we believe in here's how we expect people to behave and all that and the guys at the top don't believe it and and they don't participate in it and, you know, you can never expect people at the bottom to do what the top does not do. And the two parts of the building of the leadership credibility is you have to have respect. How many times have you seen a place or have you worked in a place where the, the uh, managers were very disrespectful to their employees, where employees were disrespectful with each other? And, and then if you want to have a value created around respect, how can you have that if the top guys aren't that? And then the second part of that is the integrity part. You have to have integrity in everything you do, not only every action you take, but in the words that you say when you talk with people, when you talk with your leaders, when your leaders talk with employees, they have to have absolute integrity and transparency. And so that's where you have to start. Build your leadership credibility before you can implement all these other phases. The second phase is what I call building a culture by design. Now, that has within it teamwork and community. I'll just take a minute on teamwork and on community. Teamwork is a phrase everybody loves to use. Everybody wants teamwork. Everyone says it's just a great thing to have. Few people do it because uh, many people don't understand what it means. And I'll just give you a couple of myths about teamwork. First of all, myth one is teams don't always have to like each other. They do have to respect each other. They do have to work together. That one of the popular misconceptions is if I don't like my teammate, then I don't have much of a team. And secondly, the, another popular myth is team, teams have to uh, get along with each other and they have to always agree. No, they don't have to always agree. In fact, you want them to disagree more often than, than you want them to agree. Sometimes you have, you know, the, the people don't like conflict and they sort of avoid it. Let's take this offline. We'll talk to the boss about it later on. And that's just it's horrible dynamic for a team. You need, to, you need to have productive conflict. You need to have guided conflict. You need to give people conflict resolution skills so they can do it productively. But you have to have conflict in order for a team to be successful. And, by the way, you pay people for that. Let's say you work in the quality department and you're on a team with a guy in manufacturing. Well, the manufacturing guy usually gets paid to get the product out the back door, right? Quality guy, he gets paid not to ever let anything get out the back. <laughs> not perfect, right? So you have to incentivize these two guys together. Say, when it's perfect and it gets out the back door, you guys both get paid. Until then, you don't. So you have to incentivize people to work as a team. Community, I could spend a year on community. We're, very, we're a very community-minded organization, and, and I can attract the best and the brightest employees in my community because they like the fact that we support the community. They point to the fact that with their neighbors, see that sign there where we cleaned up the street? That's, that's the Miller Ingenuity Street. 
see how Miller Ingenuity supported the uh, local charity in town. That's my company. It gives them pride and it gives them, you know, a reason to brag to their neighbors about the company. And I see that as a symbiotic relationship. Not only does it benefit the company to be involved with the community, it benefits the community for the company to be involved. And phase three is commitment and excellence. This is the hard stuff, Todd. This is where the CEOs go, yeah, yeah, I'm ready for that. Tell me about that. This is the lean stuff. This is the self-directed work teams. This, you know, teams in my factory, we have no bosses back there. They decide what they're going to build today. They build it. They decide when they're going to go out and clean up the streets as part of our community commitment. They decide when they're going to brainstorm because they're totally committed. And we've done Kaizen events after Kaizen events after Kaizen events. That, that's a whole art and science in and of itself. But that's where you get into the real operational issues of reducing costs and, and improving profit. Now, you have to have all of that first. That's phase three is building today's organization. You've got to do all that first, and then you can move to phase four, which is building future capability, what most people call innovation. And I'll give you an example, Todd. When we got to that point, we started to build our innovation capability. I hired the ex-chief creativity officer from the QVC network. Hmm. He came in, and his mission was teach us how to be creative. <laughs> Most people think you can't, you know, you're either creative as a trait that you were born with or you're not. That's really not true. All the scientific studies show that we're all creative. It's just a matter of unlocking it and, and teaching people how to use it. So he came in. I had the whole place was taught how to brainstorm. And then I built that creation station room in the back so people had a place, a cool place to hang out, get out of the factory environment and so forth. So then we started off by saying, here, you're going to have to spend X time developing X ideas, developing, you know, X thesis. And so we did that for a while, but then it started to morph into itself where people said, you know, let us pick when we're, what we're going to work on. Let us pick what we're, when we're going to work on it. And now it happens automatically. Anytime I go back in Creation Station, Todd, there'll be a half a dozen people in there brainstorming on something. Stephen, I have 508 questions I want to ask right now. I mean, this is fascinating stuff. I mean, a couple of key things I think that we need to talk about is, is the importance of productive conflict. I mean, that, in my view, that is creativity. That's how you do it. If you yep. have an organization without that, well, then you're, you're not taking one risk worth taking. And, and creativity is risk. Someone might not like it. And you've got to foster an environment where people can sit there and share ideas and agree and disagree and say, wait, I like where you're going there, but we can do it better. And here's how I think we do that. And that back and forth is where this thing changes. And yep. it goes back to what I was saying earlier, that that manufacturing isn't sitting there walking up in your overalls and flipping a switch and turning the conveyor system on. No, you got to build that conveyor system that's doing amazing things, and it all happens with these four phases. I mean, that's where this thing comes from. And and you know, I love the idea of, of building future capability. I mean, that that's that's a great way to define what innovation is. And 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 look, the I'm like overwhelmed because I have so many directions I want to take this conversation. I don't know where to go next. The the, the idea of of an organization, though, I want to I want to beat in on this productive conflict because I think that is so. And and I want to emphasize before I go further that that I understand now why these four phases have to happen in order because it won't work if you don't do it that way. And 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 your organization is not going to be prepped, not going to be capable of doing uh, you know building future capability if you don't do those those first couple of steps. So. 
There's so many people in management, though, that I think are so deathly afraid of productive conflict. Uh, can you talk a little bit more about that and, and, and yeah. how, and how yeah. you foster that in a way that's, that's meaningful and impactful? And I think that's what makes an organization fun is when you're in an environment where, that's, where that is, in fact, productive. It's conflict, yeah, but it's exciting because you're making change. Well, it is, you know, but the problem is here's where the problem starts in, in, at home with families. Yeah. Families generally aren't good at conflict. And there's conflicts all over the place in families. But they're generally not good, uh, as a general statement, they're not good at it because they believe, because they were raised or they were told to or whatever, that conflict is bad. Right. It's not bad, just like you pointed out. Destructive conflict is bad. Productive yeah. conflict is great. I mean, uh, that's where all of the inventions and all of the advances in, in the world have been made with productive conflict. But no one ever likes a new idea. Right. No. <laughs> Except the idea, that guy raising the idea. So that's where it starts. So then you, when, if you walked into a company, Todd, and you started running it, uh, you should assume that uh, there's all kinds of embedded conflict in the organization. You just don't know what it is. And if it's not being channeled, it's probably a destructive conflict. You just have to make that assumption. So you get people in a room. This isn't a one-time occurrence, but, but it's something that's repeated. And you say, I know there are conflicts among you. I know that. And you have probably been trained, and maybe people that you worked for before all you know, would tell you, I don't, you know, I don't want conflict. You guys handle your own plot. You deal with it. Don't talk to me about it. I don't want, I don't want that. I'm here to tell you I want it. Not only do I want productive conflict, I'm, uh, I'm expecting it. And if, if you have an issue buried deep within you that you're seething about and you, you can't be productive about, and you don't raise it to the surface, you'll get in more trouble for that than you will for almost anything else you can imagine. Right. And, and I'm going to teach you conflict resolution skills. I'm going to bring the conflicts to the surface. I'm going to have you guys professionally trained in how to deal with it because you have to do it respectfully and you have to do it without personal attacks and you have to do it in a, in a fact-based way and so forth. And then once you've trained people and you're facilitating it and you're reinforcing it, the, the best thing that can happen, Todd, is for the boss to say, I love conflict, bring it on, because they've never heard that before. Right, right. Well, I think it's counterintuitive for a lot of people, and that therein lies part of the problem here. But, but I think you, you have talked about and hammered home the importance of, of, of a strong culture through this entire conversation. And you can't have a good business culture if you're not facilitating and empowering and, frankly, encouraging productive conflict. I mean, that's where all the stuff, that's where all the magic, what do you think Steve Jobs was doing at Apple for all those years? I mean, a lot of people recognize, I'm tired, I can't believe I actually went down that path and mentioned Steve Jobs. I try to avoid that because everyone else talks about Steve Jobs, but, but what do you think he was doing? What do you think Apple was all about? What do you think's happening in, in the innovation pathways in that organization? Do you think that's, that's productive conflict? Yeah, heck yeah, it is. That, that's a great example of it. And a good business culture, and, and this even further helps us understand why this has to these four phases has to happen in order. Because because if you don't have leadership credibility, and I'm not just talking about the CEO, right? I mean, you're talking about every element of of the organization, from team yep. leaders to to every exactly. division, every department. I mean, there has to be leadership credibility at every one of those stages. And frankly. I think you have to have personal 
leadership credibility. You have to be, I mean, you have to hold yourself personally liable for, for a, a commitment to these values. And because if you don't, well, then you're not going to fit into this whole thing. Yep. I, I mean, that's where this thing starts. And, and, and you can, you can foster an environment of productive conflict if there is trust in those around you, certainly those managing you. I mean, that, that's why that's the bedrock of this whole seven values, uh, seven values of ingenuity is, is the leadership credibility. You can't, you can't do anything else without that, right? No, that's exactly, that's the bedrock of the whole uh, process. If you don't have that, you, you know, I don't care if you have the best machines on the planet. I don't care if you have the most uh, highly efficient uh, accounting systems on the planet. Without that bedrock of uh, a culture, you, you might as well just throw it out. Well, you might have the best machine in on the planet making a certain thing, but it's not going to be long before that thing is no longer valuable because the world right. is, the world has moved on. And so the whole point here exactly. is this building future capability, which is the final phase and why all this leads to that, because that is what this is really. And this is why American manufacturing struggled, right? Because they lost sight of that. I mean, that that was the whole point. Uh, of of this whole process and why we've lost our footing there and why we can get it back because that's that's what it takes to look look ahead because for for a long time there American manufacturing wasn't looking ahead they weren't worried about building future capability because they were satisfied with the product they were making at that day and yep. then tomorrow all of a sudden boom Japan snuck up and bit him in the fanny right right. Uh. You know, the other thing I'd say about that, Todd, to, to your machine analogy is my competition can buy the same machines I have. My competition can develop the same products I have. My competition can build the same buildings I have. My competition can do almost anything I can do, but they cannot duplicate my killer culture. Yep. Yep. Well, what do they say? I mean, this is this is simple, but it's not easy. And it's not. And it shouldn't be easy. I mean, this is work. This takes commitment. And this process never ends, right? I mean, you may crack the code and say, boom, boy, circa 2016, we, we hammered and, and got the seven values right in our organization. It doesn't mean it's going to be the same world and same environment in 2017. This is a, this is a constant process. This evolution never ends, right? But, yeah, that's true. And by the way, implementing the seven values is a multi-year process anybody right. thinks they can do that in six months or even a year it's a two to four year process depending on how big your organization is right right well you know most people think they can change the culture of an organization by putting a new motivational poster behind the receptionist desk no it doesn't happen that way this this Upper is sticker values <laughs> exactly i mean and so i'm i'm uh, I've long understood, Stephen, how I, or at least I thought I did, where American manufacturing got off off the rails. This this conversation around these these four phases and these seven values, it, it's really helped me really crystallize my understanding of where we got off the path, and certainly helps us understand where we can get back on it and, and where. And look, I don't want this to be an us versus them. This doesn't mean that because we succeed that China doesn't. I don't, yeah. I, I'm, I'm one of those uh, people that have the opinion is let's the rising tide lifts all boats, right? Let, let's let's all do well. Let's all you know. Let's let's look at Japan. Let's look at China, and, and India, as you mentioned, and, and other economic powerhouses. South America has got a huge opportunity. Well, and, and frankly, we all do if we follow these seven values, right? Yep. And that that can be a good thing. And, and, and it goes back to what we said earlier that look, 
Uh, don't be afraid of, of automation. Don't be afraid of robotics. Your job is not going away because there's always going to be a need for these kinds of things. And, and it, the business world may be looked different in a generation, but it, it isn't going away. And, and, and a thoughtful, thoughtful utilization of, of, of these seven values means it, it can only get bigger and better, right? Uh, well, that's a good point. And, you know, when people look at uh, and they're scared about automation, they're scared, they're scared about everything. Right. I mean, you know, uh, anybody introduces a new idea, only the guy that introduces a new idea liked it. Everyone else is afraid of it. That's just life. That's just human nature. But if, if CEOs look at and treat their employees as renewable resources instead of expendable assets, they will renew them. Hey, guys, got a new product coming online here, a new technology, and, and I know it's kind of scary. Because you've never done it before, and you don't know what it means for you. Here, let me tell you what it does not mean for you. It does not mean you're going to be out of a job. It does mean we're going to train you in the new technology. We're going to train you in the new process as long as you, you know, if you, you want to be trained and you're amenable to all that. And so you have to, you have to hold their hands because what, what most employees are used to, many employees are used to their leaders not telling them the truth. They may not necessarily be lying to them, but they don't tell them the truth because they're afraid they'll get scared or they're afraid they'll you know, go to another employer or whatever. The fact of the matter is if you don't tell people what's happening, they'll make up their own stuff. And I guarantee you what they make up will be worse than the truth. Well, I, look, if you understand the four phases of, of your model here and you know, leadership credibility and building a culture by design and commitment and excellence, all leading to building future capability, you're you're going to be just fine. You're going to survive. In fact, you're going to thrive. I mean, it, it, I can't believe I'm doing this twice in one interview, but but it's the, it's the, it's going back to Apple, and it's it's creating a product that decimates the iPod. This was the most yeah. revolutionary product ever used by mankind. Some will say, and 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 Apple killed it with with the development of the iPhone <laughs> because they yeah. followed these principles. They followed these right. these seven values, and that's and that's the point here. And and that's that's the secret to getting manufacturing back. And, and frankly, I, it go this these lessons apply to virtually any kind of business, not just manufacturing. Absolutely. Right. Right. That just happened to be. The publisher had it, had it, and my publicist said, "Why don't you write a book about American manufacturing 2.0?" Uh, and so I did. But it's really, it's a, I don't care what kind of business you're in. This is a, a same model could be used as long as it's done in the right sequence. Sequence is critical here, no doubt about it. All right, well, Stephen. <laughs> I've gotten myself a little bit emotional, a little excited in this conversation, so I'm really grateful for that. Uh, but sadly, we are over our time. i got to wrap it up. Before I let you go, should anyone have any questions, how do they find you? Where do they learn more about Miller Ingenuity? And most importantly, where do they get their hands on a copy of Manufacturing 2.0? Well, they can go to uh, Amazon and get Manufacturing 2.0. That's probably the easiest thing. Or they can go to my website. Uh, my personal website's easier to spell than Miller Ingenuity, so I'll give you that. <laughs> they both link with each other. They just get on Steve Blue CEO, S-T-E-V-E-B-L-U-E-C-E-O.com. They get my books. They can link over to Miller Ingenuity. They can contact me anything they want. All right. Stephen Blue, CEO of Miller Ingenuity and author of the new book, American Manufacturing 2.0, What Went Wrong and How to Make It Right. Stephen, this has been a fascinating and fun conversation. So grateful you stopped by. Yeah, I had a great time. I, I love to wrestle around with guys like you that are passionate about this. All right. Well, I guess we'll have to continue our dialogue down the road. Lots more you and I both know we could talk about and go deeper on some of these things. So we might have to just make that happen. To all the time we have for today, again, on behalf of my guest, Stephen Blue, I am Tachnik. Intrepid Radio signing off. We'll see you again soon. 
Thank you for listening to Intrepid Media. We appreciate your attention. To receive everything we do, simply go to intrepidmailinglist.com. That's intrepidmailinglist.com and sign up. You can also find us at intrepid.media and on iTunes. And to support the important work we do on your behalf, a rating and review on iTunes will help spread our work far and wide. Again, we certainly appreciate your support. Now get out there, be intrepid, and we'll see you next time.